Today in the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, we're going to do part one of your week in IndyCar listener Q&A. Today is also election day in America, and based on what I have seen in the media, I at least wanted to try and get this done and out before the country becomes a smoking crater? I don't know. Uh, there's been a run on bananas and a lot of other things and foodstuffs and protective gear and firearms and whatnot. Um, I can't recall that happening before leading up to an election. So I'm hoping this little show can be a, a mild, mild distraction to entertain you, maybe educate, but probably just entertain through my own stupidity while who knows the country goes crazy we'll find out as always we're going to say thank you to cooper tires and the justice brothers torontomotorsports.com and bell racing helmets usa before we hit your questions wanted to update you just a couple things that didn't necessarily go into articles might be of vague interest so in the what monday 21 car test at barber motorsports park had a couple of drivers who maybe found the edges of the circuit and some of the runoff a little bit more than desired. One of them was brand new Aaron McLaren SP driver Felix Rosenquist. He had a couple of uh, red flags, I believe, was told that his car came back. The number seven Chevy came back on the uh, the wrecker twice. Would say that brave kid. And there's nothing negative or critical to say about him having the offs. Knowing about his fractured hand took a, uh, a hit and a crash, or in a clash, I should say, the Harvest Grand Prix with, uh, with Charlie Kimball, fractured his hand, did his best to get through that at St. Petersburg. Well, <laughs> having, what, seven, eight days to rest after St. Pete, they when went to, then went to Barber which is just, I don't know what the multiplication factor is, but a massively difficult, much harder uh, impacts and force required to get the car around Barber. So not a surprise. Felix kind of with with one, uh, one wing not exactly working the way that he hoped, really was not able to uh, give a full representation of himself. And so having to control a car around there, at proper speeds while really dealing with one functional hand. Uh, that's bravery, I would say, and uh, not a surprise with someone like Felix, who uh, he likes to go quickly. Uh, some other things that were impressive in testing, Antonio Felix da Costa ran approximately midfield, having never driven the car, don't believe he'd ever been to Barber, just, yeah, we know that guy is super talented, uh, just yeah, hope we get to see him at some point in time in the future. Uh, beyond that, what else can I share before we get rolling with your questions? Got a couple things moving. Uh, one of them, silly season. Actually, two of them, silly season. Uh, I think I can mention one of them when we get into your questions. There's a specific one about it. There's another one going on in the background that I don't know if that's going to... Uh, going to get uncovered or at least uncovered by me. But uh, as usual, I wish I could tell you everything. Uh, In some instances, I cannot. This isn't meant to be a tease. It's just sharing what I can with you. Some pretty interesting stuff going on right now. One that I think uh, might want to be kept under wraps 
and some driver stuff as well that uh been asked to either not say anything or things i've been told have been well off the record so just sharing that those generalisms with you to drive home the point that yeah there aren't too many seats left to fill but wow (laughs) there is a lot of effort going on to try and land in one of those seats and that makes me really really happy so that's about all i got for you before we roll into your questions here you know what i'm starting to hear a music bed uh hearing a music bed that tells me it is officially time to get rocking and rolling with your questions starting with hire lee congratulations by the way hire on the uh the cool item you mentioned uh via dm here also, our pal Daniel Summersgill, love to see you getting stuck into the IndyCar show each week. Daniel, along with our weekend sports cars, two of them want to talk about two-seater, Mario Andretti, Honda, and uh, accuracy and reporting. So as the cleanup hitter on that story, I'll do my best to go back a little bit and to help you guys with your questions, knowing that I probably don't understand everything. Uh, higher says what are your thoughts on the andretti two-seater news uh blunder says uh i was disappointed to read uh the first story especially because in that story mario was positioned as being fired but then upon reading the story by the betting man himself robin miller all sanity was restored uh p.s shout out to the man who has to put the questions together this week hope i'm before the cutoff line you're not just before the cutoff line mr hire lee you're lead off batter uh, we also have Daniel Summersgill. Do you think the PR regarding Honda's decision to end its sponsorship of the fastest seat in sports uh, with that IndyCar two-seater program could have been handled better? Hashtag me personally. Rumors that IndyCar legend Mario Andretti had been fired left a bad taste. Yeah. Uh, so probably the easiest way to start this off is had heard about this uh, late last week. Friday, maybe Saturday, something like that. I don't know when Stephen Cole Smith's story came out on, I think, the drive.com about Mario being fired or whatever. Um, you know, so the straight answer is Mario was hired by Honda to drive the two seater. Honda, like a lot of other brands involved in factory-related racing, either things that we've seen announced or that will be announced, a lot of those brands are looking for shiny objects to cut from the budget, things that are fun and cool and that we all love, but with shrinking budgets, decrease in car sales, all the things that we know that COVID-19 has caused or affected – A lot of manufacturers are looking at things in their normal racing budgets to cut. And in some cases, manufacturers, this is a general statement, but manufacturers have been told they're going to face a reduction in budget for next year. And the people in charge of the racing program or various programs will have to surrender things. Uh, Some have been told, okay, you're going to have the same budget, but you're probably going to have to cut something or one or more things 
if you want some discretionary funds to spend on whatever else might be needed. You might say, well, what does that mean? Uh, let's say manufacturer has $5 million to spend on its factory racing endeavors for the year. Uh, could be open wheel, sports car, stock car, whatever, off-road. If that manufacturer, say, has some real trouble and their vehicle isn't fast or their engine is slow or their engine is blowing up a lot all of a sudden and they need resources, resources meaning financial money to spend to solve that problem, well, if you're either facing a reduction in budget or a cap on what you have, but you're not going to be getting extra money if any new issues turn up. Well, those manufacturers guys are looking to say, hey, we better make sure we leave ourselves some margin and or just to get down to the budget we're going to have, we're going to have to get rid of some things. So I'm not saying that that is exactly what has happened here, but it wouldn't surprise me if that was the case. Um, does the t- funding the two-seater program, is that something that sells a lot of extra Hondas? I don't know. But I do know that some of those bells and whistles that get plugged into the budget, those are the things that tend to go away. Uh, things like hosting media, flying them here and there and putting them up and doing a little wine and dine, razzle and dazzle, whatever. That's also a pretty common thing in racing. Uh, the automotive, just straight up automotive side as well. I've heard about some of those things being turned off quite a bit, just all in the general realm of, Ooh, we really got to tighten our financial belts here. So take all that, understand that Mario, I believe is part of the Honda sponsorship of this with IndyCar for 15 years or whatever it was, was being paid. I would have to assume, uh, directly by Honda. And when Honda says, hey, we need to stop doing this because we have to, um, it doesn't equate to firing Mario. Just the one sponsor that's been paying him is stepping back, and now it is upon IndyCar, just as they did when they signed Honda to this in 20, or 2005, 2006, to find another sponsor. And we would hope... IndyCar and that sponsor would say, and we absolutely want to continue with the greatest of all time. But this is a more of a sponsorship change than a firing of the guy. And so I can understand some of the misunderstanding that might have gone Stephen Cole Smith's way. I know Stephen. Uh, I have mostly positive things to say about him. I do know that just in a very general sense, not specific to any outlet he would work for or whatever, but I read a lot of super extra, more clickbaity than ever type headlines, in our little world at least, the stuff that I pay attention to in racing. It really seems like there has been an amplification of big zinger type headlines. And... I'll just use a quick little example here. Uh, We had a situation where Kevin Magnuson, what was it, two weeks ago, whatever it was, uh, said he'd love to come to IndyCar. I'm paraphrasing. He'd love to come to IndyCar, but knowing that there aren't many seats left and, you know, money's required, whatever, whatever, uh, it's not looking particularly easy 
or feasible for that to happen. I can just say for the headline that the web editors at racer.com used, it really followed what he was saying. Interested, but Kevin himself is casting a lot of doubt on this being a reality that could come true. Reading those same quotes, because they weren't given to a specific reporter, reading those same quotes on a couple of other websites, it was just big, explosive, flowery, you know, they weren't saying Magnuson's coming to IndyCar, but very misleading and intentionally subverting what he was saying, all in the hope of getting his fans to read the story because it was presented as something through the headline that once you read the story was actually nothing connected to the headline. I can't speak to how other people put their stories together, how people edit, don't edit, come up with headlines, all those things. But I can tell you from what I've sussed, there was a a sense of, hey, this is going to be Mario's last drive in the Honda two-seater at St. Petersburg. And I'm led to believe there was an impression given that he was being dropped by Honda, something along those lines. Um, And was this maybe presented originally in a little more of a sensational angle than I might suggest? Probably. Was this something that Honda, Daniel, to your question, was really planning to do a big press release about? No. Uh, when I got the uh, the release, quote, release yesterday, it wasn't a release. It was actually just four talking points. Uh, so, and those really weren't items to cut and paste. It was just, here's what we're doing. Here's kind of the reason why a little bit. And here's another item or two. There we go. So this was never meant to be a big thing. I just know that it might have been presented in such a way where some reporters got the impression that something very negative was happening between Mario and Honda. Last thing to add here, I can't tell you, because again, I wasn't there, if follow-up questions were asked, uh, because this seems like one of those things where just a little bit of additional follow-up could have brought some significant clarity of, hey, Mario's been on the payroll of the brand that's been sponsoring it for 15 years. That brand's leaving. Um, so that means he does would not have a job directly through them anymore. But the program isn't going away. IndyCar told me that in a call yesterday. And hopes are that he'll be able to continue with someone else. So I would refer to this, y'all, as I don't, use this that often, but this struck me as the proverbial storm in a teacup. Holy cow, what's going on? All kinds of confusion and casting aspersions and doubt and belittling, you know, a hero and Mario and who this and that and how and why. Will we remember this a month from now? Absolutely not. But, hey, it occupied a lot of folks' time over the last couple of days to try and sort it all out. So, ah, there we go. All right, we're going to roll into a couple questions, one from Argent200 and the other one from Northern Penguin 01 both from the Reddit, about Alex Pillow, our guest on the show tomorrow. So, so, Pillow is in at CGR, Argent200 poses. Do you think he's got the confidence uh, of the team like Felix did, or is he more of an Ed Jones 
type situation. Uh, also says, hashtag me personally. I think he's got more tablet than Jones. Not sure what that is, but I like that. Uh, and he seems to have a personality better suited for a cohesive team. But what do you think about his prospects for success under Chip? Uh, Northern Penguin also adds, hey, Marshall, with Alex going to the 10 car, uh, not the Alex I thought would be going there. I think referring to another Alex in the series. Uh, now a seat at coin is open. Who do you think is the most likely to take that car? I'm assuming it's whoever has the biggest checkbook, or do you think coin might go to a one car team? Interesting stuff. Spent a little bit of time on the phone with Alex yesterday after that test at Barber. Also was texting a lot with our pal Dario Franchitti and he really got to meet everyone yesterday. He was in the shop end of last week over the weekend and got to meet mechanics and such, but you know, the full kind of everybody assembled at the track type deal. Monday was the first time he got to meet a lot of people and he went for a track walk at like 6:40 AM with Jimmy Johnson. <laughs> How do you like that for your first day kind of at the track on the job? And all I've heard from Dario and from others is how much they really like the guy that matters. Right. Uh, and also how impressed they were with his first day in the car, uh, his smooth driving style in particular really stood out. So if your first day is one where the whole team uh, takes a significant liking to you, you were a tenth off of Scott Dixon's fastest time. And the driver coach, you know, kind of the, the big voice of whether they have confidence in a driver being able to get the job done or not. And Dario says, like, hey, it's only one day, but uh, this kid's fast and he's smooth and really impressed me. Those are things, Argent 200, that lead me to believe he's on the right path. I think with Felix, there was big expectation based on his previous body of work in a variety of other series. We knew how fast he was in testing for Ganassi being like Alex right there with Dixie. There's also the learning aspect too, knowing that he did, I don't know what the percentage was half ish of the IndyCar tracks when he was in Indy lights. Uh, so, you know, he had some familiarity, but he spent his rookie year still having to learn a ton, brand new to IndyCar impressed everybody Second year, felt like he regressed a little bit. I think I mentioned on the last show or the one before, while he finished 11th in the standings, it was on the result of like five really good races, and the rest, uh, not great. So it, big points in those five, really not so much at the other. The inverse was Marcus Erickson, who was very consistent and rarely great, but good at a lot and built up his points there and had about five races that weren't so good. So they ended up at almost the same place, but in diametrically opposed ways. And so I would just say that the second year with the team really didn't seem to demonstrate Felix's full potential at all time. That's why I think this change of scenery is going to be a good one for him. Uh, also knowing that he's going in without this, raging monster of a six-time champion to keep trying to beat. Um, I, th I love where he's at. So that's why I think it's just a little bit of a different situation for Felix coming in, new to IndyCar, learning half the tracks, and the biggest 
hardest puzzle to solve in the series in the team leading teammate in Scott Dixon. I think Alex comes in with a full year of experience, having been to all the tracks, having done very well in essentially the smallest or one of the smallest teams in the series. Didn't have a ton of great finishes, but demonstrated a lot of potential. And I think he's in a very different situation where Ed Jones was known to be a stopgap guy. There were other drivers that they were going after, Sebastian Bourdais being the, the lead one that we know of. Um, Ed was a, hey, all right, well, we can make this happen, and we have a, a hole to fill, and we'll see how you do. It's entirely up to you to make the most out of the opportunity. Uh, we're not necessarily signing you because we think you are Dixon's eventual heir. And Ed did well, but Ed just didn't, you know, really did not seem to cotton on to the the team as a whole and, and connect heavily with them. There you go. So not a lot of expectation coming in. Didn't necessarily make it work for himself. I'm not saying it was all on him as well. Just saying that the outcome was he was nowhere near Dixon and... That story was uh, written and the book was closed before the season ended. Uh, Alex, I would say there's more expectation because I think they believe there's a real rough diamond here. Don't know how much polishing it's going to need. He's going to need to become really, truly shiny and no longer rough. But I think there's a, a heightened expectation that Alex can deliver well. Now, what is that? I don't know. I'd say there's also something here about there's a little edge Jonesish Jones-ish type scenario where, look, man, we're going to give you all the tools and give you everything to succeed. And if you do, awesome. We are going to be so happy. But if you don't, there's going to be some significant free agents coming on the market uh, at the end of 2021. So this is up to Alex. I would say his personality is one where I think compared to Ed, I think he's just going to connect with the team a little bit better, and I think that might be the thing that helps him get more out of his season. Uh, Northern Penguin 01 asking about Coin. Yeah, he's definitely uh, looking to fill that second seat. Uh, I would pretty much guarantee you that he's looking for whom can pay for it. Uh, I have not known Dale for a long, I mean, I think ever, to actually fully fund the second car on his own. So we're also on the clock here to find out if Santino Ferrucci is returning to what we would call the lead car. I think he is, but have to wait and see when that gets confirmed or if it doesn't. But yes, Dale, especially this year with his restaurants taking a hit and all kinds of things, uh, setting his budget back, there's no way on the planet Earth where that second car will run without someone paying for it. And I would be surprised to hear if they actually reduce to a two-car team. So almost say things are a bit status quo, right? We're back where we normally are during the offseason with Dale Coin Racing of kind of think who's going to be back in the first car, spin the wheel of who's going to be in the second. Uh, let's see. Invisible Teeth from Reddit. I love names on Reddit. I don't know if I've read one from you before, Invisible Teeth. If not, thank you. 
Uh, he or she says, I've seen Ryan Hunter doing new DHL ads and testing it in, D- in his DHL number 28. Does that mean they're returning? Uh, he was also testing yesterday at Barber. As I wrote in my last silly season piece on racer.com, uh, very happy rumors that everything has gone from being potentially farewell to just trying to button up last couple of things to get a contract extension done. Hearing DHL was out and now hearing they're back for at least a year. Again, rumors, but well-placed sources. So I would say absolutely expect to see good old Ron Hunter back in the number 28 Andretti Autosport Honda. Uh, Next year, I can't tell if it's going to be a one-year deal, multi. Again, I don't know. I just know that that's a announcement that I would say put that consider that just a formality. Uh, it's going to happen. Just waiting for uh, the official news from them. Going to take a sip of water here. Sierra five six eight seven. Another Reddit. I'm telling you, our Reddit's blowing up. I don't know why, uh, but it's all good. Uh, two questions here. One from Sierra. 5687, and also our pal J to the J, Gertler. Uh, Sierra says, hey, Marshall, I asked this last week, but I think it was a bit late. Uh, Jackie Heinricher, IMSA team owner, co-entrant, was on the Today Show. At the end of her interview, she said she was going to be the first female IndyCar team owner, uh, having a female driver in 2021. I figure she will pair with Shank Racing as the second part-time car. Also says, uh, who do you think would be her driver? Uh, also, an interview with Catherine Legg with updates on her rehab and her future racing plans would be nice to hear. Also mentions to Mrs. Pruitt and you, keep on keeping on. Um, yeah, wrote a pretty in-depth story with her on Racer, so you might go check that out from last week. Um, Mr. Gertlers also adds, interesting story about Jackie, looking to run any car team. For years, only two names have been mentioned when the prospect of women drivers come up. Uh, is the list still Simona D. Silvestro and Pippa Mann, or are there other women with relevant experience that could be in the seat? Um, why don't I work backwards here? Uh, I believe Pippa and Jackie drove together. I believe Pippa was the pro in the Lamborghini Super Trofeo entry or uh, outing or two, or I'm not sure how many. Um, when Jackie was really just starting to get into kind of the pro-ish level of racing. So those two certainly know each other. Simona, I would say yes. Uh, Simona and Catherine are certainly the two uh, top names to be mentioned. No disrespect to Pippa, but I am only going to tell you all the honest truth here, and that is when I hear team owners talk about the women they would love to hire to drive their cars, but don't for a variety of reasons that are maddening. Uh, It is Simona first, Catherine second. Don't hear any other names than those two. So um, would tell you this, with what Jackie is wanting to do and trying to do, There was also a little bit of acrimony that went down late last year. She had the all-female team with Marshank Racing and IMSA in their uh, GT Daytona class with an Acura NSX GT3. Catherine was the lead driver. Christina Nielsen was her co-driver at most of the races. Simona was in there. A few other drivers were in there. 
Um, things kind of fell out, and Catherine and the her co-drivers moved on to another team. That team turned out to be a bit of a, a smoke and mirrors routine. I don't know, uh, and this is maybe creeping into your questions as well, Sierra. I don't fully know about where Jackie and Catherine are at. I do need to reach out to Kat just to find out how she's doing in terms of a, a health and recovery update. I would say if you'd asked this question late last year, earlier this year, I'd say there's no chance ever that they would work again, work together again. Could that have changed in the time being? Possibly. I just need to hear from Catherine on all that. Um, Here's one thing to not overlook. Jackie would really like to play a role in not only bringing a woman to race for her at the Indianapolis 500. She very much sees the of the multiple problems that Penske's race for equality and change is meant to address the lack of women coming up the open wheel ladder. And so in our conversation, I didn't bring this up. She brought it up was a desire to try and fix that and try and get young women onto the ladder and moving up and towards IndyCar because there was part of the conversation. I don't remember if I used it in the story or not, but there was a little bit of an acknowledgement that, no disrespect to Kat or any of the other women who've been in IndyCar and are, you know, veterans, 30, 35, 40 years old and such. But there was just a bit of an acknowledgement that, hey, it's awesome that we have who we have right now, but there really aren't any ready-to-go successors for the Cats and Simonas and Pippas and so on. So let's get that going so that we don't have, as JJ mentioned, the one or two kind of go-to names. And so I can't say if that's going to factor into her Indy 500 plans, provided they come to fruition. But I know that we did talk about the W Series, some of the leading women competing there. Alice Powell, uh, Jamie Chadwick, Alice drove for uh, Jackie last year. I believe it was at the VIR round. And she was wickedly impressed. And so Jamie and Alice in the inaugural season of the W series were the two ass kickers. Um, you know, could I see Jackie leaning towards trying to develop a new uh, woman to the Indy 500 compared to going to one of the few options of the proven veterans? I could. And I would say that would be pretty darn awesome. For all those who routinely get upset and voice their opposition to, hey, pick the team, IndyCar team, you've got a seat open and you put some older guy uh, with money in it instead of going after a road to Indy type talent to develop the future. I kind of view that in this direction of, well, if you're going to do it and you do want to try and fix this broken pipeline for women in particular well how who better to start than with one of the most talented young women who granted never done IndyCar but obviously are very familiar with open wheel and go that route so can't say that that's what she would do I got a little bit of a vibe that she might hoping she can 
put the money together to make this happen. I did put her in contact with some good people that might help uh, her to just develop the, the overall plan. So I'll be watching this with great intent. Um, also forwarded that story to RP and got back a very short note. Uh, so I thought it was a cool thing that uh, really the first team owner, potential team owner that I know of, who read about the race for equality and change and is genuinely responding to that. Hey, whoa, they're trying to do something different over there. I want to be part of that solution. Uh, I thought that was a big deal. Maybe not everybody agrees. Uh, let's see. Our pal, Hrishi Despond says, permission to treat the podcaster as hostile. <laughs> two, un- two unanswered questions from last week. And for those who aren't familiar, I don't always get to everybody's question each week. And do ask that if you really want me to answer it or them, send them back in. And the more hostile um, you are in saying, hey, idiot, uh, sending this in again or again, um, would you get your monkey ass to answer it? Uh, The higher the likelihood. The more I laugh at the hostility aimed at me, those are the things that jump out. So just a little FYI. Uh, Harishi says, both Foyt cars in the top 10 for the first time since Gateway in 2017, referring to St. Petersburg. Was that a fluke or a sign of things to come? Um, not a fluke. Just have to appreciate, Hrishi, that the team obviously did good work between a disastrous Harvest Grand Prix in terms of setup and finding even being within a mile of uh, the setup they needed and getting to St. Pete. So the team did a ton of great work between those two rounds to find uh, the right direction. But we can't overlook the fact, no disrespect to many of the drivers who've piloted Foyt cars in the last couple of years, I cannot put a single one of them above Sebastian Bourdais in terms of my French fries technical feedback and ability to collaborate with a race engineer and direct that engineer in sharper directions. So there have been some drivers that have driven for Foyt in the last couple of years who have great feel and can give a lot of great feedback. I'm just saying I can't think of a single one that would actually rate above Seb in that regard. And so that's where when the team strikes upon a good starting setup, a guy like Bourdais can help them get to an even better place faster, and that's only going to help a teammate, assuming their driving styles aren't wildly different. Uh, you also asked to close, what caused Willpower's downshift issue uh, with gearbox, was it paddle shifters, ECU, or other? Uh, as I understand it, this was simply a case of two gears being called at the same time. So I don't know. If this was software-based, if there was some sort of issue with the GCU, the gearbox control unit, uh, if this was a electronic, hydraulic, I can't tell you what caused this malfunction. I just know what he told me, which was uh, it called two gears at once, and that doesn't quite work because uh, you need a single gear. Uh, otherwise, you're kind of sort of in bad shape and... Uh, not going forward. And this isn't like the first time it's happened. This thing happens every now and then. Uh, probably happens once a weekend for somebody, and it's just a bit of a fluke. So I just don't have the exact answer 
for you as to what specific thing caused it. Uh, let's see. Sasha Khan 24. How you doing, Sasha? Prior to the 2020 season, you mentioned something that might go down at St. Pete between two drivers and said that someone should ask after the year. While I doubt I'm catching you uh, mid-beer, maybe you're hopped up on some pills and are willing to spill the beans. But seriously, I hope things are getting better for you every day. Uh, and says uh, she says, and if it was Santino trying to post DHL, or if I miss you mentioning on a different podcast, hopefully a fellow listener could lead me in the right direction. Thanks, MP. No, it wasn't uh, Santino. I'm still not comfortable, and I don't know why. It's me. It's my fault, right? I'm still not comfortable in doing the thing I said I would, which means that I fully suck, Sasha. Uh, how, why don't I just mention this? And I'll just leave this, because the thing is, <laughs> whenever I try and like kind of keep something on the down low or, or intentionally leave things a little bit vague for whatever reason I need to, I think I do a good job of that. And then I usually either, whether it's Twitter or a direct message or whatever, get someone going, oh, so you're talking about this driver going to this team. And I'm like, damn it. Like, I'm just bad at this, apparently. So I'm probably, this is probably going to give everything away, but I'm going to try yet again to not put too fine of a point on it. There were preseason discussions that a certain driver was going to have, I don't know how exactly how to describe this accurately, whether it was an injunction. I think injunction would be the way to put it. Had the St. Pete race gone forward, I was made aware of a driver who was planning to have an injunction placed on a team that would have had the injunction, I guess, been agreed to or written in such a way, had all the things that the driver believed that they could make happen uh, through the courts that the injunction would stop that team from participating in the event. And I don't have a full picture on what the intent was, whether it was just to cause massive embarrassment or for money. Uh, I heard that from a very impeccable source. Um, I'll just leave it at that. And so we didn't have St. Petersburg to start the season and Thankfully, that didn't happen because IndyCar really would not have needed that to happen. Uh, so there you go. I hope I didn't just give the whole damn thing away, but knowing me, I probably did. So anyways, uh, but thanks for asking that, Sasha. And I know a few others have asked for me to answer that too. So if you happen to be listening to this episode, there you go. Uh, let's see. Where are we going next? Uh, we're going to Andrew Drybelbis. I hope I just got your last name right for maybe the first time. Uh, do you think the lack of information about tire wear and street course races led to the spins and crashes we saw from experienced drivers who weren't able to explain them? Uh, there seemed to be more marbles than usual. Maybe the extra weight from the aero screen contributed to that? Question mark. Uh, hey, Andrew. No. Uh, I mean, the, the aero screen is 60 pounds in a car that weighs almost 1,800 pounds, fully fueled up with a driver in it. So it's a while it is certainly felt in the handling uh, of the car, uh, that's not enough to just really turn tires into powder. Uh, I don't know if there are really many drivers who couldn't explain why they spun or crashed. 
I know at the time, many of them say, I don't know what happened, but it's usually because they don't see, they're not watching the broadcasts where we or others get to see the incident from four different angles and in car from all over and can easily explain why. So would just say, don't confuse a driver saying they don't know why with it actually being a thing where they can't figure out what happened. They just haven't had the time usually to go and realize and look whether it's data, video, otherwise go, Oh, okay. So, um, no, I mean, you had a, two things, as I mentioned before the event, uh, in a written story on racer, you have teams doing their very first street race of the year. So setup wise, you weren't going to have a lot of teams that really nailed the setup. Therefore you're going to have cars that are not perfectly balanced. You're going to have cars that either over consume the front tires or over consume the rear tires, uh, simply because again, no street races this year, a uh, limited amount of track time before we get to the race. All things that I, I mentioned you guys should expect to hap- uh, see happen. And it's not because I have some mystic brain that can pre- predict the future. These are just well-known things. Um, we also had a lot of people at the race, as I mentioned as well, Andrew, who had something to gain, something to win, something to make happen for themselves. So the amount of extra effort, if not desperation, if not pig-headedness, it's at a very different place at St. Petersburg in October than it would be in March. So if you combine, in most cases, lack of perfect setups, uh, which means to tires being consumed too much in one direction, front, back, maybe all four, who knows, uh, plus everyone seemingly having something that they're fighting for that means a lot. I got to get a win before the year is over. I got to prove to the team they need to keep me. I got to showcase my skills even more so hopefully another team recognizes me. Uh, whatever. Um those two things collided and therefore a lot of people collided and or walls were collided with. Uh, let's see a practiced observer from Reddit as well. I'm telling you, this is the Reddit, the Reddit episode. Uh, I watched the IndyCar victory lap video on IndyCar's YouTube channel. It was a lot of fun. Hinch has a natural talent for this mentioning basically the end of your banquet, uh, with Hinch hosting it instead of it being in a big old ballroom type deal. Uh, IndyCar stumbled upon what could be a great weekly talk show with guest stars and fan polls to keep everyone engaged during the offseason. Does IndyCar have anything officially in the works for offseason content between now and St. Pete in March? Uh, I don't know. I would have to ask my pal Davey first. Uh, but you can assume they're probably going to try and do something. What I don't know is what. So, yeah. I mean, Hinch is just good at doing that stuff in general. He's also a professional, meaning I'm fairly positive he was paid for his time here uh, last week and would want to be paid for that again. And I don't know what the production costs are for doing this. I know you could say, well, hey, it's just on YouTube. Sure. But it's not somebody just holding up their iPhone, filming him. There's full production lighting and cameras and sound and all kinds of things. Uh, I don't know if that would be in the budget. It looks really simple watching it on the screen. It's not simple behind the scenes. So 
Uh, I will ask Davey. I can't guarantee you when, but uh, I'll see if they do have anything coming like that. Um, let's see. Ryan Terpstra. Oh, my goodness. How did we get this far into an episode without a question from Ryan? Bad, Ryan. Bad. Uh, what did they learn at IMS on the Speedway test last week? Uh, let's see. Is there a hope for more competitive Indy 500 in 2021? Uh, well, might have read the column that I or the story that I did with Tino Belli, IndyCar's aerodynamic director, said that they definitely found some good things, found some things that weren't as great as they had hoped or thought, but the end result is they have a lot of options for making downforce, if needed, to improve stability for cars that are trailing and therefore trying to pass. That's been the problem the last year or two. I did speak with one driver. I haven't used it in anything yet, so I'm not going to mention who it was, but one of the drivers who participated in that speedway test, uh, Tino mentioned that they had very mixed feedback. And the driver that I spoke to had very mixed feedback. Mirrored some of what Tino said. Hey, you know, there were some things. You can certainly bolt on some downforce. Um, the throwing the strakes on the diffuser certainly bolted on some downforce, but that was at the back of the car, and that's really not where we're trying to. That's not where the problem is. It's up front, creating enough downforce without the front wings, right, without having to use the front wings at big angles to make downforce, which slows the car and uh, has some other undesired effects. Want to try and use the floor uh, and treatments to the floor that will increase downforce at the front of the car and make it more stable and so on and so forth. And the feedback that I got from this driver, the very good driver said it's two things. Sure. If you were the first car chasing somebody or the second car it helped. The real problem is, and the real problem we've had at the Speedway the last couple of years is when you're the fifth driver in line or the seventh driver in line, because often you'll see kind of a longer train of cars. He said, when you're back that far, you're screwed. You're just, there's so much turbulence, there's nothing you can do. So at least for this driver's input, he said, I appreciate the work that IndyCar did. There are some things that will improve things slightly, but the design of the 2018 Universal Aero Kit Speedway front wing, that's the problem. That is the problem. Uh, it just does not generate the downforce that we need, and you've got to crank a ton of wing angle into it to try and get it, but there's drag with that. It slows you down on a straight line. And, you know, if I had my choice, we'd keep some of the things they came up with for the floor as options, but, and I know it's going to cost money, but they would go back and redesign that front wing and come up with something that is more powerful at a shallower angle um, and maybe right there we start to solve a bigger chunk of the problem instead of what it feels like we're adding little bits of things that were good, but it wasn't as big of a jump as hoped. So I've tried to get feedback from another driver who, I'm granted, I know that there are, what, six drivers I could speak with. There are two who I thought would really give articulate answers 
uh, and opinions, and I haven't been able to get a hold of the second one yet. So I don't want you to take that one driver's opinion as gospel, uh, but just sharing what I can because it's all I have for right now. So uh, there you go. Let's see. You also ask about, uh, do I think Elio's behavior at Laguna Seca this past weekend in IMSA will influence his chances at driving an IndyCar in 2021? Uh, you say related. I'm shocked that IMSA didn't park him for the weekend, but that's a bit of uh, weekend sports cars territory. I don't know if you all saw that, but uh, yeah, Elio used his accurate Team Penske entry as a battering ram to pay a bit of retribution to the Action Express Racing Cadillac. Those two cars clashed at the very end of Petit Le Mans, um, which Elio's entry ended up winning, and they got into a big old argument and not a fist fight, but uh, yeah. Uh, not happy times. Um, Action Express car appeared to over slow coming out of the pits, uh, slowing Elio. Elio drew alongside and just turned hard right and bashed into the side of the Action Express Cadillac with his Acura. Um, just a, I'm sure we'll talk about this on the sports car show too, but I'll just share this here. To your first question, do I think it's going to change anything for him in terms of any car opportunities? Absolutely not. Uh, do, am I shocked they didn't park him? I had a full rundown afterwards of what took place after this. And as I understand it, Elio owned everything, not only took full ownership, went to the action express team, apologized to them directly for his behavior, apologized to the drivers really and truly got down on you know both knees and begged for forgiveness type scenario. And uh, I'd say that led to the lack of IMSA going hard after him because IMSA stayed on top of the situation and was basically waiting to determine what should we do. You know, we have the right to do whatever we want and was told and learned about from Action Express how Elio handled this and really just read the situation and said, okay, no doubt he screwed up. They were penalized for it, but they handled this in the way you would hope without the, the quote, refs having to get in and, you know, eject players and whatever else. Um, they handled it among themselves, and it sounds like Elio, hat in hand, handled it properly properly. And therefore, this was uh, smoothed over and solved. Let's see. Let's go to Eater Flozada. Reddit again. Hold on, Marshall. Which photograph or photographs will you award as the image of the year in IndyCar? Also, in the topic of photographers, how's their situation with IndyCar? The problems that you talked about for your uh, say farewell to your favorite photographer story from late May. Uh, will that still happen in 2021? Um, as for which photo of the year, wow, I don't know. Uh, I would suggest sending me some, uh, I don't, not by email or whatever, but, um, you know, good old tweeters or Facebooks, uh, send me some that you all think might be the ones of the year, keeping in mind that people actually own them. So, you know, we're not quote stealing them, but just, or send me links to those photos. Uh, I've seen a lot of really good work this year. So that makes me very, very happy. Uh, especially from indie cars, in-house photographers, uh, Chris Owens in particular. Man, that kid is just really, really, really 
impressing me with the with the work that he's putting out. Uh, you're mostly referencing in that story that I wrote about LAT and some other agencies. That has all been smoothed over. There was a big fart in church earlier this year with uh, signing everything away to Getty. And, uh, yeah, uh, that was fixed. And I do not foresee any issues going forward. So very happy to say that. Let's see. This is the last one before the line, before the cutoff line here. Uh, Nathan Cook. How you doing, Nathan? This is MP with the passing of Sean Connery. I got to thinking about what would happen if we were to take the IndyCar grid and make a Bond movie. Who do you think would play what character? Because I could see Rossi playing Bond. Would that have to go to our resident Scotsman, Dario? Man, Nathan, I got to admit, how are you missing Max Chilton, right? I mean, got, he's got the jaw. He's got the accent. He, I mean, you know, he's pretty fella. I mean, right? Uh, he's not, like, super tall, but, you know, I would say he'd, he would look perfect in that suit. Position him more as a lover than a fighter, so he'd have that side of the roll down, you know, the chopping people, you know, karate chops and shooting the guns and, you know, leaping from vehicles and airplanes and helicopters, boats. I don't know about that part, but I'm just saying, if you were to dress a guy up, as James Bond from the current IndyCar grid, it's not like there's even a number two that comes close to Max, I would say. So eh, a little disappointed in you there, buddy. Uh, but instead of casting the entire Bond film, we've got the potential, right, for the... Uh, got the potential here for someone that I think would be pretty darn good in that role... But I'm curious who we throw in as the bad guy. Who's the baddie, right? Who's who's the one trying to kill Max Chilton, a.k.a. James Bond? Uh, if Graham Rahal keeps on growing that mustache, he might be able to twist that up and say some really mean things. Um, who? I mean, Ed Carpenter, although he's a bit of a sweetheart, he also has that kind of ice-cold killer thing. I think I referenced someone else as being, I think I forget who I reference as being a good candidate for uh, playing Dexter in that show. There's a bit of Dexter and Ed like, Oh, you wouldn't want to make him mad. Like your, your, your life would be over kind of thing, but he's just got that nice smile. So, but maybe that's off putting, right? Who would, who would be the perfect, perfect villain? I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking. No, you can't take Pagano seriously. That French accent just diffuses all that. Uh, no, we're not going there. Boy, we don't have a lot of those. Just baddies where you go, all right, that, that A, the person's just a dick, period, in real life. But most of all, they could play the bad guy. Who, uh... Yeah, I'm struggling a little bit here. Um, let's just go with Ed. Let's just go with Ed. Ed's uh, funky Ed, multifaceted Ed. He would be the bad guy. What I don't have, what I don't fully understand is what his thing would be, right? Because that's the thing with every Bond villain. They've got the supercomputer or the henchman that throws the hat that has razor blades around the edge that's going to cut your head. You know, there's always some sort of something. I might need your help in figuring out what Ed's kind of villainous angle might be. Um, let's see. All right. I only have 
a few more minutes here before we have to take off. Uh, Daniel Espinoza, you ask about, is there a push for standing starts to return on road and street courses with the next car? No, I've heard nothing about it. I don't think it's coming back, period. Uh, Trip Hazard, any chance of Kurt Busch doing a surprise any car cameo next year, driving uh, Jimmy Johnson's car in the ovals? Um, that is a for sale opportunity. So unless someone is paying for that, uh, the only person that will be driving the 48 Honda on ovals is the person who ends up paying for it. So there's that. Um, let's see. Jim Johnstone MP can, uh, assuming Kevin Magnuson has some backing behind him. Would you feel he'd be an ideal fit for whatever the second car at Marshank racing would be doing? Um, mentioned that, Kevin has loads of experience in other cars. Uh, could, but as I understand it, they're planning on doing less than half a season with that car, Jim. So I would say that from full-time Formula One driver to part-time IndyCar driver, that's where I think uh, we might lose uh, the re- possibility of that being real. Uh, let's see. JJ Gertley, you're back. Mentioning um, Dale Coyne is not take kindly to people trying to poach his drivers uh, in a situation like Alex Pelos is his contract with Kazumichi go rather than coin. And is Mr. Go involved in Pelos deal with Ganassi? Are they hiring him directly? I don't know. I don't know. And I don't know. Um, I would assume that since Dale, I know was putting in some of the money for uh, the 55 Honda that Alex drove that I would, you know, I would assume that contract is directly with Dale. Uh, with the obviously the financial commitment from Mr. Go, Mr. Go was not mentioned in anything related to Ganassi, which I figure if he was continuing, that that would have been a thing, right? Uh, Chip Ganassi Racing with Team Go, something like that. Um, that is not what we saw. Is there a possibility it could? Again, possibility, but I think as you guys heard me say once or twice now, Late in the season, there was pretty strong rumors going around that Mr. Goat informed Dale that uh, he would not be spending more money in 2021, all COVID-related and such. So if he were to come back, that would be a really cool thing. Uh, let's see. Peter Nutt. Let's see. You mentioning, should we assume that aside from Honda and Chevy, there most likely won't be more manufacturers materializing? It's getting kind of late. No, I would not say that, Peter. Um, as I wrote a little while ago and whatever my last engine story was, I think I might've mentioned here too, that, oh, and our cat Rocky is telling me that he wants to eat while his sister Rosie is woken up by him sleeping in the sun. We'll get you in a little bit, buddy. Um, we have a year, Peter, we need to have, uh, manufacturers declared and, or starting to work by this time in 2021 because they're going to need to have that motor along with the hybrid powertrain on track late. I should say hybrid powertrain. The KERS system that makes it a hybrid powertrain on track late summer, you know, August, September type deal. And granted, there's another question here, which I'll need to follow up with IndyCar, uh, as I do with many things I need to know. When do they anticipate? Well, they haven't even announced who's going to be the vendor uh, for the uh, the curse system and such. But when do they anticipate this being available? Because other than doing a very 
basic systems check and whatnot with motors in the back of a DW12 without the KERS system possibly, there's really no reason for any manufacturer to go testing until they have the complete hybrid power plant in place. So that's something IndyCar and its vendors will dictate. So if that's going to be available in April of 2022 or November of 2022, that's going to dictate the timing a bit as to when manufacturers really need to jump in and and start designing and cutting metal. And admittedly, that's a year away from now, so no worries there. Uh, Also, Peter, you mentioned, do you think that after RP's Indy Lights spat, and I think there's some questions about that in part two, uh, there's some background, uh, is there some background research going on by the Penske Group to recreate the Atlantic Series? So in its last season, it featured around 30 drivers, if I remember correctly. I don't know. And we don't really have time to get into the whole Roger uh, Indy Lights spat thing uh, in this episode, but wow, just wow. Let's see, where else can we go here? Tony Chef 20 got a question about the Nashville Street Race, doing a doubleheader, uh, then maybe going to the Nashville Super Speedway, Oval making that the doubleheader uh, with the logistics. What would the log- logistics be, as I try and get my new lips to work here, uh, Marketing-wise, do you think it would increase uh, attendance for both races? I do not. I think with what IndyCar has in place, Tony Chef 20, and their commitment to this Nashville street race, they would not even consider diluting attendance in any way, shape, or form. I think they're going to want to keep 100% focus on getting folks into the city for that race. Uh, where else? Where else? Uh, Mike Kristoff. Uh, no idea what an IndyCar program costs for a season. Uh, says, I know it's somewhere north of $5 million. Do you know of any attempts to make it more affordable when the new formula begins in a couple of years? I do not. I uh, would say I only expect the costs to go up because the hybrid power plants are going to cost more. And, yeah, uh, so another great question that I need to pose to IndyCar. Um, let's see. going to f- just try and fire through as many as I can. Gabe Argenta, nice question. Marshall, are you feeling any better? Best wishes. Um, I am. Uh, still have, I think, about a week to go with antibiotics. So uh, the thing the doctor told me is to keep things really mellow, uh, keep my energy output low so that my body is as rested and charged as it can be to fight off this infection uh, while also using the antibiotics to help. So I am feeling tons better. Just not always great, if that's a way to describe things. Last night was a little bit rough, and even right now I'm not feeling awesome, but uh, so is life. Uh, B, at Beard Nagel, Nagel, I'm not sure, Twitter, Marshall, other than cats, how do you soundproof the room that you podcast from? Well, uh, for the most part, I don't. Uh, We're sitting here in a nice little apartment townhome type thing across from the hospital that we frequent. Uh, We moved here intentionally because it's right there. Um, This was only meant to be a one year. We anticipated it being a one year thing. We're we're here. We'll be here for another year. Who knows if it'll be another year after that. Uh, This is what would be the second bedroom, uh, which is my office. So yeah, other than a little bit of soundproofing foam that I have near the window, uh, but I can't fully close off the window because you know cats (laughs) they like to look outside and see things and sun themselves it's not really soundproofed at all 
So, yeah, occasionally you hear loud cars flying by or ambulances or police or cats meowing. It's way better than where we lived before, but far from perfect. But, eh, hey, uh, we make the most out of it that we can. Um, JJ Gertley got another question, brother, about pace cars. Sorry, brother. Uh, going to pass on that one. Um, right turn lovers or any variation for teams to choose from in terms of tires Firestone brings to oval races, or is there effectively one spec? Uh, yes, there is effectively one spec. Uh, we know that at times on rare occasion, there's been, uh, one or the other to choose from, and that's usually done in testing and there'll be a decision made on which one to bring. So options presented testing prior to the race, but I am struggling to recall a time where teams actually had two different compounds or constructions or whatever to, to pick and choose from, therefore having true variables of what was being used during the race. Um, Matt <laughs> Sarsniak, I hope I got that right. Um, you've sent this in more than once. I actually haven't gotten the answer back. Uh, Harvest Grand Prix has noted that track temps are really cold. How do they measure them? Infrared scan at specific points, sensors embedded in the track, etc. cetera. Uh, I know that for what I see, it's usually someone walking out with an infrared uh, temperature gun and just pointing it at the ground um, and taking a reading to determine what the track surface happens to be. Uh, there's also, I would say, in race control, they have a full weather station and full weather station data. Uh, so between getting that information uh, that is available there and then just the walking out and uh, measuring it directly with a infrared gun, I'm assuming that that's how they come up with it. Keeping in mind, I know you're talking about the Harvest Grand Prix, but this is a situation at every track where if it's cold-ish, they're going to need to figure that out. Not every track has the same standard equipment in place. So I uh, would say that the things that IndyCar can do through their own weather station and um, Firestone, I would say, is the one that uh, is probably relied upon for the track temperature. Um, this, I would have to assume, is how things get done. But again, I did fire the question into IndyCar and haven't gotten an answer back, so I apologize if I have gotten that wrong at all. Uh, just reading here, I think i got time for a couple, and then we got a roll. Uh, Ross Porter. Hey, Ross. Uh, I was re-watching St. Pete because I'm a hopeless addict. Noticed some interesting front wing adjustments being made in the pits. We all know that the main wing uh, is changed in the center of the nose, but I noticed that the smaller winglets uh, on the stack, the outer edges in front of the tires, being tweaked side to side via individual adjustment points. Never noticed this before. Is this a new thing teams have developed, or have I just missed it? Uh, you have indeed just missed it, brother. This has been a thing for a super long time. Uh, also, do you think the addition of the hybrid system will help offset some of the forward sprung weight induced by the aero screen and create a more balanced car? Uh, I don't know about more balanced, my friend. Uh, the car is already too rear heavy, and so this is going to add a ton of weight to the back, which is not going to make folks super happy. The aero screen weight is really hard to get past. Um, it now adds some complications to the front of the car because of the height of that weight. Um, you know, it, it try standing on one leg 
and holding a 60 pound weight above your head and see how that causes you to sway and tip over either side to side front or back versus just standing on one foot in general it's a bit of an extreme example but that's how having this high 60 pound weight up high on the car compared to everything else uh it does cause a bit of tipping and falling over sensation which isn't super great uh let's see who brings more to the fans asked daniel summersgill again out of jimmy johnson scott mclaughlin who might bring more also uh, an american motorsports quote expert on a show in the uk stated he was disappointed in ganassi bringing in johnson as a sheet sheet sure seat could have gone to a younger driver uh true it could have if only that younger driver had six million dollars so this again fits that wanting to support young talent thing no argument there that's you know everything that i love uh but we also have a situation where that seat was not paid um this is something where in order for jimmy johnson to have an indycar extension to his career he had to go find the money so since ganassi wasn't paying anyone to drive the car how would you give that to a young driver unless that young driver is bringing money it is a business it's not a charity in many many cases these days uh nick dovniak was felix's decision to potentially leave indycar have anything to do with cgr needing to find significant funding for the car um believe that i mentioned here uh however long ago that he had a deal in place for the extreme e i just don't know if he was super happy there anymore and i need to catch up with him about that but there just seemed like there was a bit of a division um do i think that ganassi cannon wood will find the money to complete the 10 car sure uh, and time could have been spent you know more time hey we're going to sign you to stay and it's just going to take us a little while to get all the budget in place i think that's absolutely possible i just think that there might have been some other things that were uh leading leading felix to want to leave and i don't fully know why um all right our last question our last question uh where should we go all right we are going to go with david cubine hey david uh let's see says hope you're on the road to recovery as a modern media person you're a writer, reporter, podcaster, journalist, columnist, and broadcaster at various times. Your work says to me that regardless of which role you are in, you have credibility, great sources, plenty of experience, and strive for accuracy. Boy, I've conned you really good, David. Uh, I'm curious how you balance the more traditional journalist and reporter values when you work in these other roles. You're friendly or friends to many drivers in the racing community, but you also don't seem to let that affect your objectivity or voicing an unpopular opinion. Uh, you honor embargoes and confidences, but often break news and are no mere PR voice for the teams in IndyCar. Jeez, it sounds like I paid you to write this, dude. This is crazy. Um, and you entertain at times, but get serious when appropriate. I also ask because many people I see here and read don't balance those areas as well as you in any medium and wondered how you, uh, how you think about what you do and how you approach it. And thanks for pronouncing my last name correctly a few weeks ago. That never happens. So... A uh, little secret to reveal here, David. I don't recall pronouncing your name a couple of weeks ago, uh, much less correctly. So if I just murdered Cubine, then please tell me I did. I'm sorry. Now I'm genuinely like nervous that I got it wrong. Um, wow. Okay. That's uh, an incredibly thoughtful and kind thing to send in. 
like, wow. Need to tell you that when I was starting out as a reporter, I messed this up a lot. Got it totally wrong. And things that were said kind of off the record, but I didn't feel that they needed to be, or, or the person said it was off the record, but you know, the, these are things that were kind of well-known. Did I push the boundaries of using some of that and get yelled at afterwards and at the time think that, you know, well, I'm trying to establish a, a, myself in the industry and, you know, I uh, want to push the boundaries a little bit in doing that. Yeah, I did. And uh, I don't look back at it with pride. Um, and, you know, does that mean, I don't does that have greater significance or meaning about who I am as a person? I don't know. Uh, this is not an excuse. It's just sharing a reality. I am fairly familiar with folks who are trying to make an impact, make a name, something in a new area. Uh, it's not uncommon for folks to try and push the boundaries a little bit and then use the pushback they get as the thing to set the line and boundary. And I would say that that was my equivalent to Gilles Villeneuve uh, testing with McLaren for the first time in Formula One leading into his his F1 debut and intentionally spinning the car at the majority of the corners, which led most people to say, this guy's way over his head, get him out of the car. And he said, no, 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 uh, it's the exact opposite. Never done this. I don't know these cars. I don't know any of this stuff. The only way I'm going to find out the limit is by going out and exceeding it. And then I know, all right, this this is too far and this is just far enough not claiming that I had some master Gilles Villeneuve uh, Silverstone plan in my mind, but I'll admit that, yeah, there was a bit of a, look, I don't have anyone teaching me how to do this or telling me how to do this. I don't really have uh, a veteran next to me working with me saying, all right, kid, this is how you become a reporter and a whatever. And uh, I had to either make it up or mimic and guarantee you, David, that I pissed off however many people and did some things that were just not right. I can't tell you one example. I was just eviscerated by one PR rep, uh, American Le Mans series, when I was told something by the crew chief of a team, and it was hilarious and brilliant. I'm like, I absolutely got to use this. And none of it was set, none of it was mentioned as being off the record or anything else, and used it in a little notebook. Uh, thought it was just a great fun story um, and got to the media center the next morning and he came in just guns a blazing. There are other PR reps in there too and reporters and he just decided it was time to hand me my lunch. And so I was about a year and a half on the job then. You know better. You know that whole thing was off the record. That's complete garbage. You know better. And I'm, I'm sitting there going like, okay, so I could yell at this guy who's actually fairly powerful or I can just take it and just let him rant and go on and on. I knew I wasn't wrong, but he felt the need to tell me that don't do things like that again in the future in a very public way. So anyways, man, there are a number of things that helped me learn and kind of get the, the bowling lane bumpers to keep the ball (laughs) to prevent from throwing gutter balls. So yeah, uh, I really do appreciate the kind words, but hi, Rock. But I do need to acknowledge that, you know, wherever you think I've gotten to uh, or achieved whatever, um, 
that has certainly come through making a lot of mistakes. Um, but I would just say that the, the, the one way I look at things is knowing who I know, knowing the general feel that I have for sensitivities and knowing what will likely piss people off, what will, to the point of them shutting down, blackballing you. I've had that happen a couple times. That usually happens a couple times each year. Uh, folks understanding you've got a job to do and whether they might not want you to share the news, but um, you get a feel and you do your best to work within that. And it's very much a feel thing. And I know that's not a hard answer, but you know, there really is a sense of all I can do is try and do my best and respect the people that I work with. I work in an industry as do my friends at many other outlets where it's a small thing, David, we work in a very small industry. Y'all know this. There aren't not a lot of money. It's not as wealthy and stable as it once was, whether it's indie cars, sports cars, name, whatever. And boy, it seems like everyone is so cranked up on caffeine and so sensitive about every little thing that just a few years ago, if I wrote something that said, Hey, team a, they're losing a sponsor or Hey, they're going to change drivers at the end of the year. No one would comment, but multiple sources have confirmed and I know it like it's a, you know, I'm writing it because it is a fact. I just can't present it as a fact because none of the players involved will say it's a fact. Normally understanding like person's got a job to do, don't blindside them by it, but they understand, hey, you know, that that's why we the the earth has reporters. That sense of understanding, David, I would say is being lost. We're losing it's becoming extinct at an alarming rate where things that you would write a couple years ago and say, I'm not saying it's gonna make team a or sponsor B or driver C happy, but they understand boy, the, Oh my goodness. Uh, you even mentioned such a thing. Oh my gosh. Are you out to kill us? Are you out to get us? Would you have a problem with us? What's the beef? Or here's the other fun one. This has been happening more than ever. Normal thing. Got a story. You call around, talk to a couple people. You try and get your facts straight, get your sources, you know, confirm. If you're, you got multiple sources confirming it, great. If it's on the record, even better. Doesn't always happen. The instances of, hey, so-and-so called me, Pruitt called me or whomever called me, and they're asking about this thing, and then the phone call from the team owner or whatever position in power saying, do you really need to write that story? Do you, I mean, does that help anyone? Does that, you know, what does that do? What does that do for you? I don't know, like almost accusational. Why would you want to write that? What, what, what's the motivation? Do you have, is there like a, you know, some sort of ax to grind? Do you have an agenda here? And it's this bizarre thing, David, and it's just a super hyper sensitivity. And so the standard answer I give to most is here's the thing. My clients do not pay me to sit and wait for you to send me press releases, to then forward to them to run. 
if that's how I could get paid, if I could make a living by actually doing nothing but waking up each morning, staring at my inbox for a couple hours, seeing what comes in, and just forwarding it, granted, most of those same releases go directly to the outlets as well, so they don't probably need me to do the forwarding, but if we can figure out a way where I can earn the same income from doing nothing other than forwarding emails from with your press release, whatever information in it, let's have a conversation. But since that's not what I'm paid to do, since I'm paid to actually report as are others to sometimes uncover the things that you don't want us to uncover. But again, reporting, it's not specific to racing. It's just it's part of the human existence, news, transference, information transference, analysis, opinion pieces, whatever. Um, if you can find a way for me to basically just click the forward button, let's talk. Until then, pardon my French, but get an effing grasp as to how the world works and how people interact. And if all folks really wanted, if all fans really wanted David was just perfectly crafted press releases that only say what you want it to say, even if it's not accurate. Like I think that's why no disrespect to any other outlets, but racers traffic specifically it's IndyCar traffic is crazy. And I like to think it's because while we can't always tell you everything, which is how I open the show, we do our best to tell you everything, keeping you, keep you at the leading edge of what's happening. Hopefully it's all good. It isn't. So sometimes there's bad. Sometimes there's stuff in the middle, whatever it is to give you a full diet of what's going on. So you all feel like insiders. We also have to do that without burning bridges and shutting things down uh, for ourselves, since it is a very small community and there are people who have the power to absolutely shut you down. So it's just trying to find that fine balance, David, of what can we do that's not going to blow up people's worlds, the sports worlds, the sports world, um, or whatever else. And the last quick thing I'll mention, doesn't always work out this way, but you try not to surprise anybody if possible. And, you know, if you've got some bombshell thing about, whatever's going on, you don't want the team to necessarily read about that first uh, or the team owner or the whatever. Doesn't always work out perfectly. I can tell you that you know, I called a team owner yesterday about something that haven't reported on. Who knows if I will, so on and so forth, but just to try and get a feel. Hey, I've heard this thing. I'm not calling because I have real questions as to whether it's real. I know it's real, but calling to see if you can talk about it. Uh, if not off the record, uh, and if not there at all, then just to find out if there's any sensitivities, right? That's the thing that we often do. Hey, I know this thing's going to happen. Uh, I can't keep sitting on it. Uh, so if I'm hearing it, someone else, another reporter is going to hear it and write it. So uh, can you tell me if there are any sensitivities here? And it's not uncommon to be told, David, uh, is there a way you could hold that for six hours, 24 hours, something? Uh, we still haven't communicated this to the team. 
or the sponsor or the whatever. Um, and then usually the question comes back. So if this were to be held for six hours, you're not going to be pushing out a press release in five, right? <laughs> that does happen every now and then where you, tr- you try and be a good citizen and play ball and the team says, cool, we just got this idiot to park their story for whatever duration. We're going to undercut the guy and uh, push something out uh, before his story. And then we own the narrative. Doesn't happen often. I'm not saying it does, but it does happen every now and then. But you ask, okay, I can sit on it for 24 hours, but A, I sure as hell better not be reading your press release uh, in 23 hours time. And if I either hear another outlet might be on to have beyond this scent or if another outlet gets wind of it and runs something, we're not sitting on ours for 24 hours. So you just try and be as good a citizen as you can, David, to close, accepting that you cannot always. And sometimes you're going to have to do your job and write things that you know are going to piss people off, stress relationships. Uh, as I've said before in the show, there have been times where some drivers who I have like impeccable relationships with long standing friendships with we haven't spoken for weeks months uh most of a year because they were pissed off about whatever or they pissed me off about something i mean it's all people right doesn't mean i stopped doing my job and reporting on them but it does mean boy there's a hard line about if it's not about on track stuff uh i'm not wasting any of my time to do anything more because uh that that's that's something that comes as a result of good behavior. So I don't know, man, lots of mistakes to figure out the right way. I appreciate the recognitions that you've made. Also saying, I'm sure I still get things wrong. And I'm sure that there's some people listening, whether it's team driver, whatever, who go, yeah, dude, you get, you still get it wrong a lot. Um, I can tell you that the intent is never, to do something bad or negative or hurtful, just knowing that sometimes the story I have to write might not make everyone happy, but um, certainly try and err towards the things that are going to build and expand compared to burn things down. And there are a couple people that I've seen since this is an IndyCar show write about IndyCar in recent years. And boy, Uh, they clearly are coming at it with a flamethrower. I don't know the agenda, whether it's clickbait uh, angles or they just hate the series and see nothing good about it. Um, I'm a glass half full guy. Plus, I've loved the sport for my entire adult life and even my youth. So um, I don't know, man. Maybe that all adds up to something. But I appreciate the question. A little bit of a fun freeform one here to close. I need to say farewell because we got to get out the door. I am Marshall Pruitt. This is the Week in IndyCar brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, Bell Racing Helmets USA. We've got Alex Pillow coming up on Wednesday, and I'll try and get part two done here on Thursday. I know we got some questions about Romain Grochon and a variety of other folks, so speak to you here shortly. <laughs> 